Um, and, and this is a, a good example in this figure 3.1 is that, so while these individuals may come from a different ethnic culture, a different national culture, within their specific group, in this case, martial arts artists, um, they tend to have their own culture, even though they're fighting against each other, they also know a lot of extreme and visible respect for each other, both before and after their fight. So even in professional fights, as it says here, which often contain significant amounts of uh, trash talk and, and vortorial uh, ahead of time, many opponents demonstrate respect and concern for each other afterwards. And I've and so this is this is a cultural twist to what a dominant culture would say about dominating another person, about aggressing towards another person. If we look at our Western culture, right, uh, the, the the dominant Western culture is all about domination. It's all about winning at any cost. But then when we come to subcultures. Uh, we can see that there are subcultures that might even display the same physical uh, attributes such as aggression, winning, but in the end, they still, they, they, they do something unique. They show extreme respect for each other. And so this is just a good example of how, you know, we, we have an overarching culture and then we can have subcultures within those. Uh, another good example, and we'll come up with this a little bit later, is uh, one of the biggest cultural things is individualism versus collectivism. Uh, individualism tends to be a Western uh, type of thinking where the individual is responsible for their own success and their own failures. It's all about me and my winning. Whereas in collective cultures, Collective cultures is all about uh, the family in a sense that uh, when I succeed, my family succeeds. When I fell, my family fails. When my family fails, I fell. When my family is successful, I'm successful. So it's this mutual uh, type of uh, thing. Now, both of them bring up their own ideologies and, and strifes. And so when we compare things like compression and anxiety, it's pretty much a wash, but it's just a different way of viewing. Well, the United States, when we measure the entire country, we tend to score really, really high in individualism. But then when we go to certain communities, um, uh, certain places, they tend to hot, uh, score high in collectivism, mm -hmm. despite the dominant culture. And this is just an example of this. So we see uh, places that, for example, who are highly religious uh, and the religion is based on, 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 on the community. Uh, the the uh, Mormons are an example of this, um, where there's a, an adherence to community values. We see that that, that that region within Utah, Southern Idaho, tends to score pretty high in collectivism. A lot of our Native American communities that, that, that have been measured in individualism versus collectivism tend to measure quite higher in collectivism than even though the overarching 
United States, the overarching culture tends to score fairly high in individualism. We should also note the difference between culture versus a society. Culture refers to shared beliefs, values, and practices. Beliefs being, um, for example, in, in a capitalist society, belief being that you work hard, uh, you, you will be successful. That's a belief. Uh, values in a capitalist system is that, um, you know, a value would be people who um, are, are, have good, hearty values, morals, beliefs will succeed. And in practices, again, if we talk about a capitalist system, is that, um, you know, that, that, that as long as you work hard you, you, and, and get up, work the 80-hour week, you'll be successful. Now, the counter to that is, is if you're none of those things, it's not my fault, it's your fault. And so we see <laughs> that, that there's issues with that, but that's just an example of a culture or cultural belief in, a, in, in people who are strong in capitalism. Society refers to people who live in a definable community and who share a culture. So I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the United States can be considered a society. Well, no, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna refrain from that. We could say, th th this is probably a better example. We can say that Arizona, there's an Arizona society. We all live within the space of Arizona. Uh, but we share cultural values from the other 49 states. So a society is much more local based. It's uh, one, even though this is the complicated part when it gets to the global uh, arena, um, you know, we, we see the United States as a society, Canada as one society, but I'm hoping that, that, that we understand that this isn't, this isn't quite as fixed as it seems, okay? And then when we talk about culture, so we say, you know, on a global level, we say the United States as a society, the society of the United States, but then when we talk about Western culture, we're talking about Western Europe, the United States, Canada, those who share those Western type of quote unquote cultural values. So that's kind of on the global level. But the, I think the part that gets confusing about this is, is if we look at here in the United States, right? We have Native American societies versus uh, colonial Western societies. The problem with that is, is that when we, when, when we group them like that, we de-emphasize the individual values of each um, community. So we know that uh, when we talk about, for example, Native American cultures, there tends to be some shared values among Native American cultures. But the way those, those values are done plus other values 
are very dependent upon the Native American community you come from. Um, I was talking to uh, my group techniques class uh, earlier today, and someone brought up the question about talking circles and uh, whether or not they're, they're a version of treatment groups. And, and to give a long story short, yes, they are. In fact, they've been very effective in Native American communities for a long time. But the issue with talking circles is, is that you have to make sure it meets the local cultural community. Because for example, in some communities, uh, the talking circle is a shared thing. There's no quote unquote group leader. In some Native American cultures, the talking circle is ran by the elders and they, they kind of make sure everybody has their word and, they, and in some others, it's a different version. So this is kind of where we get the difference between cultures and societies is that a good number of Native American communities have talking circles, but they differ based upon the community that they come from. In this this kind of uh, this uh, this slide here, when we I kind of want to explain a little bit about China, about rural versus urban areas. As as we may all know, China is one of the most populated places on earth. Uh, they even have to they've enacted laws to limit the name number of children people could have to try and control population growth. But there is still a clear clear but what has arisen in China is a clear difference between rural regions and urban regions. In urban regions, yes, they're very crowded. People are, are neck to neck most of the time, uh, but they also have a lot of the Western uh, values that, that are held. So they're very individualistic. Um, uh, the marriage arrangements are very different. In, in rural China, they still hold to arranged marriages. They still, it's based on, uh, you know, and to simplify it, it's much more complex than this. They still rely on, you know, it's more valuable to have a female in rural areas. And it's more valuable to have a male in urban areas uh, as far as children. In rural areas, uh, the men are kind of, they, they don't bring much value because when the daughter becomes of age, the daughter is basically purchased through a diary, dowry, sorry for the wording. Um, and it usually includes a significant stake of land. It might include significant livestock, um, those types of things. And so a male is kind of just there, they work the land and that's, that's the limitations of there. So in rural China, it's much more beneficial to have a female than a male. However, in urban China, because they've adopted a lot of Western thought, a lot of Western ideas where women are, are more in the submissive role, males are more in the dominant role, they're the producers, they're the thinkers, blah, blah, blah. Um, in urban areas, you'll see men being valued more than in the rural areas. So I want you to imagine going from that world where, where, where one, it's not crowded, 
and people aren't neck to neck with each other. And I think we can do this if we, at least uh, from the Tanaotham nation and going to a place like that, where in Tanaotham, it's very much like rural China, where things are very much spread out. Um, but I want you to kind of do this mind experiment where there's these different values that we place on children. There's these different values we place on power within the family because power within the family in rural China still holds with the grandparents and then the parents and then the, and then the, the children under the parents. In urban China, it's much more like our Western area where the, where the elderly are becoming devalued. And of course, because of the overpopulation, children are being devalued a lot. And I want you to do that mind uh, experiment about what it would be like to go in different places, because this is a situation where we have a same society, China, same language, same dialect, not, not, not necessarily dialect, I mean writing, the version of writing, okay? Uh, we have people who have not been as, um, uh, uh, ethnicized as other countries where where you have um, people who you know white people with with Latino and black or a mix of all or uh, you don't have that intermixing of ethnicity in China you have much more of a, a, a homogeneous population but even within that what you would consider that society the culture can change depending on where the person was raised or the situation in which they were raised from. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting mind experiment to think about, right? Um, and we can see that that's very dramatic when we think about China, but we can think about that here in the United States when someone who was raised in a rural area then goes to a big city and a lot of times they can't handle the big city because there's so many other dynamics they go back to the rural area and we've seen where people from urban areas go into rural areas and the first thing they try to do is urbanize it um, um, i come from a region of the country where where people go to vacation they fall in love with it so they move there and then they didn't find they didn't have the same resources they did in Los Angeles or New York City. And so they instantly tried to urbanize that local area. And so that's just an example, less extreme, but uh, kind of a thought project to go through. So what is culture? Uh, for for uh, some people who do the research on it, they've defined it within three areas. Uh, and one is material culture, refers to the objects or belongings of the group of people. So that's the physical objects that we hold on to, the, um, you know, the, the housing, the, the, the work process, all those types of things. Non-material culture it refers to the ideas and attitudes and beliefs of a given society. Um, and so we can look at things like stereotypes as an example of non-material cultural values. Uh, we could look at religion as an example of non-material. What is the dominant religions within a given society? 
And then we can look at cultural universals, refer to patterns or traits that are global or common to all of the societies. So as I've said, the most on a global level, we tend to look at societies as Western societies versus Eastern societies. Um, and we can see patterns that differ among the two. The, the big example is the overarching example of uh, individualism versus collectivism, but we cannot see others as well, but that's just an example. So what are some uh, things uh, that, that are different across cultures uh, that, that we may assume are very similar? Uh, while we know music tends to be culturally based, even things like visual art and the way art is displayed, humor is, is, is something that differs across cultures. And then movies as well. You, uh, I, in the Indian country, in Indian nations of India, uh, they have Bollywood, which is supposed to be a flavor of Hollywood, but it has a very different tone to it. It's much more musical. It's much more elaborate. It's much more colorful than what you would find more in our Hollywood action type of drama situations we see here in the United States. So that's just an example but I want you to think about this as, as far as, you know, culture and everything, because we have subcultures. We have, you know, here in the United States, what we have the country, country music culture versus the rock culture versus the rap culture. And those tend to be very ethnically and regionally defined. Um, when we look at visual arts, we can, we can see, uh, you know, uh, the South, south southern type of visual arts with with the vases and the different patterns of paintings the pottery and the the, the weaving where in the north it's very much more oil based and we need to understand that that is the thing that i love about the visual arts is if we look at their roots they're very much connected to the land okay so when you go more north you'll see more oil-based paintings. You'll see more of those types of things because those make sense for a cold country, for a cold area, for a wetter climate. Well, then when you get down here in the Southwest, more uh, uh, vases, more weaving, more, more, more pattern-based make much more sense for our region down here, the region in here. So, we see these differences. I'm, I'm curious, uh, and you can put it in the chat. So, so in this slide, it identifies music, visual arts, humor, and movies as things that differentiate cultures. What are, do you think some other things that differentiate culture? You can unmute yourself or you can put it in the chat. What other things involve cultural differences or things that define a culture? I'd say religion's a pretty big one. Religion? Yeah. Yeah. Separates a lot of people. I think religion can definitely put on there. What else do we have? Oops.
Okay. It's a quiet night and that's okay. I'd like to kind of go back to Frank's example of religion because, um, you know, there are people who study world religions um, and they do vary and they do differ in many, many ways, but um, there tends to be some common aspects which are interesting, even though religion tends to be one of the things that start a lot of our wars, start a lot of our disagreements. Um, you know, if we look at it, uh, more people have died in the name of uh, Jesus and the name of Muhammad than uh, any country or state that has ever been developed. So, and, and on the other side, there's probably been a lot of people saved by that same attribution. So please excuse the, don't, please don't take it all as a negative uh, comment, but uh, when we look at religion, a lot of people who have studied religion on, 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 on the level all say that they still all have very common threads. For example, the belief that there's more meaning to life than what we have, that uh, there, there is a purpose through some superior, su superior being that is trying to help us and guide us through life all of these very common threads, but what, what differentiates us is the words and the language we use and the beliefs we put behind it, which is kind of an interesting thing or a kind of an interesting thought experiment. Even when you look at non-deity-based religions such as Buddhism, there's still this belief in, in, in a higher purpose and a higher being. And it's just kind of an interesting thing to really do if you ever have some extra time or interested in it is to really look cross-culturally. I remember um, when I first got into doing therapy with, with clients, I realized that I, I had a huge bias based on my own religious beliefs. And that um, at the time I was working with a large group of, of individuals who were not my religion and I had a really, really hard time with it. But it was an enlightening experience when I went and read their religious texts and I read through their belief systems and I read and I'm like, wow, they're more like me than they're different from me. And it's just kind of an interesting experiment to do if you ever if you ever get curious but with it religion does carry a lot of um weight as frank mentioned uh, we can see this in the dynamics of israel and the palestinians um uh the, the the movements within the muslim communities even within the same community you can have div uh, uh, division based on different interpretations. So Frank, I appreciate you bringing that up because it is, a, it is, a, it is an, an interesting thing and, it, and it'll be interesting to see here in the United States what happens uh, with, with uh, you know, our faith-based communities because we're seeing that uh, you know, the, the, the United States has largely been Christian and I have to put this, I guess, slash Catholic. I, I don't really see the difference, but I apologize for my own ignorance. But so more of the Jesus-based uh, uh, religions. 
And, and those are becoming the minority. In fact, uh, suggested by 2030 that Christianity as a total uh, religion will be in the minority. But it has guided a lot of American history, supposedly. Um, and, and a lot of the, 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 the rhetoric behind um, uh, our, our political systems has been based on this idea that uh, you know, the Constitution was ordained by God and Jesus Christ, all of those types of things. But we're seeing a shift here in the United States. Uh, where by about 2030, Christianity will actually be in a minority status under 50% of the population. Right now, I think it sits at about 64%. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's in a degrees power. So I think uh, from Frank's point, I think uh, as, as a scholar, and I hope all of you are thinking about this, is how is the United States going to change as we see this progression of decreased uh, um, uh, um, uh, belief in that religion, what does it mean for our culture and our, our place? It's, it, it be, it's gonna be interesting to see. So thank you for bringing that up, Frank. Um, there are some terms that we should talk about uh, that, that um, uh, uh, about culture. Uh, the first one is ethnocentrism. And this is a practice of evaluating another culture according to the standards of one's own culture. Uh, ethnocentrism, I mean, that was a, if you study colonialism within, within the, you know, our communities and whatnot, you'd understand ethnocentrism. Everything is compared to Western standards. This is an example of ethnocentrism. Another example is, uh, you know, when, when cross-cultural studies, even within the sciences, uh, came about. Everything cross-culturally, when it was a scientific investigation, was always compared to a Western cultural standard. And this is an example of ethnocentrism. When you believe that your culture uh, is right, it's the way to be, and therefore anything to evaluate about another culture should be seen uh, in the negative. I, I bring this up um, when I, when I in, in, in my psychology classes and my human growth and development classes, when I talk about a, a developmental theory called Piaget's cognitive theory. Uh, he has a four-stage theory. I won't get into it very much, but uh, basically what they found is that uh, most Western cultures will make it to the fourth, third or fourth stage of um, um, Piaget's theory, which would be, you would think, the highest level of cognitive functioning, which is uh, being able to think abstractly, the ability to, you know, do those things. And then when we went to and measured his theory in um, uh, societies like uh, the, 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 the uh, um, tribes in the Amazon that have been isolated from Western cultures or uh, the, some of the Thailands in New Guinea, which have been pretty much untouched because of the environment um, in, those, in those countries. They only make it to about the second level of Piaget's developmental theory. 
And, you know, from an ethnocentrism point of view, you would think, okay, that proves the superiority of Western society, blah, blah, blah. But upon closer examination, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. Because if you took someone from a Western culture and put them in the middle of the Amazon or in the middle of the New Guinea highlands, they would not be able to exist without their tents, their cooking supplies, their technology. And they probably would need a guide from the local area to try and figure out how to exist, how to survive. They would need a thousand immune, immunity shots and all those things before they even went there. And, and vice versa. Uh, but the ethnocentric view is, is that, you know, based upon my culture, we're superior because we can do that. When in reality, no, that's not the exact truth or the exact reality. Um, and, and so that, that's an example of ethnocentrism. And, and, and it's really a, kind of an ignorant point of view, if you would think about it. If, if you want to think about someone who you think is culturally ignorant, it's usually someone who is ethnocentric because they presuppose that their culture is superior or better in some way. Uh, cultural imperialism is a deliberate opposition of one's own culture values on another culture. So this is, if you want to think about cultural imperialism, this is what happened with colonization. Um, so this is where a, a culture came in and said, no, you shouldn't speak your own language. You shouldn't do your own uh, ceremonies. You, shouldn't do, you need to be Western. You need to dress like us. So, so cultural imperialism is just that it's a forcing of one's own culture on another group. Cultural shock is an experience of personal disorientation when confronted with unfamiliar ways of life. Uh, so this is again, Going back to this example in China of, of a rural uh, Chinese person going into an urban area for the first time or vice versa. Um, uh, you know, I, probably, uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring up my own, my own ignorance and, and whatnot and, and cultural shock in my, my life um, is uh, when I was born and raised in very white Idaho, Southeast Idaho, and, and let me explain where I was raised in the, when I was being raised in, in, in the 70s and in the 80s and whatnot, um, the, the demographic uh, uh, in my region was 98% white. When I finally moved from Idaho, it was, it was down to 89%, but it was still predominantly white. And uh, I'll, I'll be completely open and honest. My, my, my parents, especially my father, was very biased towards the Mexican and Latino community. He worked construction. And so he had this view of, of Mexicans that were very, very negative. Um, and so the first time I moved to Arizona, we, I moved to Yuma, Arizona. Um, and the first time that, uh, you know, we got there and, and we needed to go to a Walmart and I walked into Walmart and the music was playing in, in Spanish and everyone around there was looking at me and, and, you know, in my own ignorant view, 
I thought I had actually walked, I, I thought I actually drove too far. I thought I drove to Mexico and, and, and didn't stop in Yuma. Um, and, and, and I came to this such shocked value that it, it really um, uh, changed a lot of the ways uh, of my life. Um, it was, it, it shook me up enough to realize that, you know, the way that I've been raised, the way I've been, is not the only way. It's not the, the, the stories that my dad told me about different people. He didn't know. He didn't, he never experienced them. He never went outside of that community he was in, but he, he always had all those negative stories about other people. Um, and, and so that's, that it's an example of cultural shock because, uh, again, it's one of the things that, that I'll, I'll just give the example in my life. Uh, I mean, I'm married to a Me Mexican American wife. And when I go to uh, her family house, they all speak Spanish. I sit there and try to make up my own things that they're saying. That's a joke, but it's very much, it's impacted me in a way where I realized that, you know, that, that I needed to change the way I live and what I enjoy. So it's just an example of what happens when we go cultural shock. Um, and sometimes it's not always that good. There's been a, quite a few people who leave their communities for the first time and and uh, it has a negative impact, you know, I, I, in, in my abnormal classes and whatnot, or when I talk about things like schizophrenia, uh, schizophrenia is predominantly developed when a, a young person, usually around 1820, leaves their home for the very first time to be on their own in a different place, in a different context, and that's when their symptoms start to develop, okay? So that's cultural shock though. And, 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 and that's been my experience with, them, with it, uh, at least from my view. Cultural relativism is the practice of assessing a culture by its own standards. So this is, this is kind of what we, we, we want people to, to really look at. Um, is to really assess a culture from its values instead of judging it based on our own. But it's a very difficult thing to become what's called cultural relativist, is to really judge something based on its own values and its own place. Um, xenocentrism is the belief that another culture is superior to one's own. So xenocentrism, so, there's xenophobia and then there's xenocentrism. Xenocentrism is the belief that my culture is inferior to another culture. Xenophobia is the fear of outside cultures. So uh, this, uh, if, if you want to know if you're xenophobic, it's if, you, if you're going to a, a, a conference or a meeting and you know other people from other regions are gonna be there and you become very fearful of that. That's xenophobia. Xenocentrism is if let's say you're going to another, uh, a good, you know, another national conference or regional conference and you feel inferior 
to anyone else that's there that may have a different, you know, skin color or different language, and you feel like you're not meeting that center, that 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 culture or your culture is not as good as that. That's xenocentrism. Okay, so these are just different terms uh, that have been noted. Um, let's see what else we have. So this is an example of ethnocentrism or cultural relativism is there's an indigenous people in Sagada in the Philippines that have for thousands of years placed bodies of deceased people into coffins hung on cliffs near their villages. And you can see the picture here. You see the coffins and they're hanging on the cliff. Uh, some visitors may admire the practice, think the practice is uh, admirable. That's an example of cultural relativism. While others think it's inappropriate, that would be ethnocentrism. Okay, so thinking that there's something wrong with them. Why are they doing this? It seems inappropriate. So this, this little example from this group in the Philippines is, is you know, I, I, I'd, I'd ask you to, again, do the thought um, uh, uh, <laughs> the thought experiment is I want you to imagine if you were, if you came across this and you saw these hanging on a cliff, which way would you think? Would you think, wow, they're honoring their dead. This is how they honor them. This is how they, that this is their practice. Or would you go, okay, that's weird. That's not appropriate those need to be taken down, they need to be properly buried, whatever you may think. And that's, that's the difference between being a cultural relativist versus an ethnocentrist, okay? Um, and both of these, from, from a psychological perspective, both of these come from a different uh, perspective. Many people who are ethnocentrism have had their cultures attacked over and over and over. And have always had to defend their culture. And so when they enter into another culture, they tend to, all right. Um, the other way that ethocentrism occurs is when there's been a dominant culture that you think that your belief system is universal. Mm -hmm. We can see this in a lot of Western societies. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, again, I'll, uh, I, I always hate to shade this in the negative light because, you know, there's, there's reasons not to. But if we look at culture in the United States uh, and we look at uh, the views of when uh, an American goes and visits another country, they love our money, but they hate our people. Uh, and I'm, I'm making a very general term. I'm making this very general. Yes, they want our tourism monies, but they hate dealing with us in a general way because they're always, you know, they're always dealing with our judgmentalism about why it doesn't the coffee taste this way or why isn't this this or why or couldn't you do it better this way? And that's been when we looked at a lot of tourist um, research. And we look at attitudes towards, for example, Americans, especially white Americans visiting other countries. Uh, it really is this idea on a, a very general term. They love our money, 
they hate dealing with us because of our ethnocentrism uh, in the United States. On the other end, ethnocentrism can come from always needing to have to defend your, your, your culture and that cultural relativism is when most of the time in cultures that, that, that are constantly evolving, cultures that have retained, for example, their original language, their original this, but they also are, are, are understanding that the world changes and, and that nothing is set in place. Uh, th this tends to be people who are more on the cultural relativist end. Okay. So let's, let's talk about values and beliefs just for a minute on, on the cultural end. And I promised I'd only keep you here for about an hour or so. So I'm going to kind of maybe end with this, this for tonight. Or, or, well, let me hold on, hold on. Well, we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about norms. Okay. Values and beliefs. Values are a culture standards for discerning what is good and just in a society. So that's values. Beliefs are tenets or convictions that people hold to be true. Okay. So that's kind of really kind of what I've been talking about, the difference between a value system, what is good and just, what makes us feel like we're, we're good and just people. And beliefs are kind of these, these held cognitive beliefs, such as, you know, the United States is supposed to be the law and order nation, right? So we, we obey the law, blah, blah, blah. Those are beliefs, not that we always follow them. Uh, ideal culture refers to the standards a society would like us to embrace and live up to. And I think here in the United States, we have a division in this because we have what, 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 what we would call the ideal liberal college, culture, and we have the ideal conservative culture. And I think uh, on, on a broad level, we're going to, we're, 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 we're seeing these ideals play out in our political field. Uh, we can see the division that has been created over the last eight or so years between conservatives and liberals and uh, what you would call the Trump camp versus I guess everyone else's camp, I don't know. Um, uh, and, and those types of value systems, okay? Those, that's what we consider an ideal culture, okay? And then we have what is considered a real culture is the way society really is based on and what actually occurs and exists. So on a day-to-day -day basis, this is again, going to the liberal conservative things. We work together, we produce together, we have families in the same communities. We have, uh, you know, we take care of our kids. We do all of these things despite having an ideal liberal view or an ideal conservative view. So the real culture is, is that, you know what? We're still producing as a, as a country. So that's the idea. Sanctions are ways to authorize or, or formally disapprove of certain behavior. So these, this is kind of the law and order of things. So, you know, if we look here again in the United States, we have a really rough history of sanction culture. Um, I think right now the big uh, sanctioning is occurring within uh, uh, women rights and abortion, right? 
we're seeing a sanctioning of of those types of rights that we 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 used to trust our our uh, the women who 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 have these children developing in their stomach and we we left that judgment to them and now we see a sanctioning of that or a controlling of that um we see sanctioning based on you know skin color again you know when we look at things like uh, the things happening on the border. Uh, I think uh, it's a perfect example of why s sometimes sanction sanctioning is not a logical thing. It's a value-based thing. Because if you look at what's happening on the southern border, uh, greater than 90% of the people on the border are seeking help. They're seeking refuge in what they're considering the greatest country on earth. They want our help. But if you look at the reasons we're sanctioning them, we're assuming that they're drug dealers, we're rapists, and all those types of things. And so sanctioning is not a logical thing, is I guess what I'm saying. Sanctioning is really based on values and beliefs that the dominant culture is holding. Social control is the way to encourage conformity to cultural norms. So again, social controls can be formal through laws. But um, as Frank mentioned, when we get to religion, social controls can be also belief and value driven as well. And so, you know, when, 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 when we see somebody not acting within the value or moral system we have, uh, we believe that they're wrong or they're bad. And so as an example, um, even though, uh, you know, uh, the greater percentage of Muslims have nothing to do with the jihad, or with attacking the United States or uh, any of those things uh, that, that, that uh, the United States still puts them within one category. And so we're prejudiced against them. If we look at what happened during COVID-19 um, and, and uh, the prejudice and the discrimination and the hate crimes that occurred towards the Asian population, this is another example of social control. Um, and so, you know, this is another good a thought experiment that I'd encourage everybody to do, uh, uh, to, to think about, especially in our predominant Western culture, even though it's becoming more and more accepted. In many parts of Africa uh, and the Middle East, as an example, it is considered normal for men to hold hands in friendship. And I'd want you to think about this and this, this thing. So this is a norm. This is a cultural norm within these regions to see two men walking down the street, holding hands out of friendship. And I want you to think about this. If we, we as Americans saw two male soldiers holding hands like these two gentlemen are here, how would we evaluate that? How would we look at that? And would we hold them to the same value that we, we think of as a soldier or, we, or would we decrease their value because they're acting outside of our norm? They're acting outside of what we consider is, is, is part of our culture. Um, and so that's a thought experiment to kind of do when you look at things like this and to know that this, this has nothing to do with sexuality, this has nothing to do with, with intimacy. This is friendship in this country.
but I want you to think about how that would be here in the United States um, and how that would be viewed here, just as an example of these cultural differences that we've been talking about. All right, we're going to end tonight talking about norms, informal norms, informal norms as we continue this definition of what culture is. Norms are the visible and invisible rules of conduct through which societies are structured. So, you know, when we think about some norms here in the United States, we have lines, we have, uh, you know, our traffic laws, we have all of those kinds of things, formal and informal. Informal norms are a causal behavior that are generally and widely conformed to. And last week's lecture on gender norms is probably a very good example of that. Those are informal norms that our culture has established. When we look at formal no norms, these are established written rules, so traffic rules. And when we see people disobeying them, we judge quite rapidly. And then we make excuses for when we're speeding. <laughs> well, we consider cultural norms as well as other behavioral norms as scientific terms within the discipline. Most sociologists and cultural co uh, competency advocates indicate that we should resist a more causal association of what is normal. Um, in other words, we should refer to normal intelligence, normal relationships, and so on as not quite so fixed and rigid. All right, I want to leave symbols and languages for next week, uh, because this is a, again, a, a topic I really think we should um, really, really take some time to, to talk about. So I'm going to stop sharing right now. And I'm just going to ask everybody, 